that's the idea is that it shows we're one big family right. and that cliche is true we're all one big family and maybe if we see this more concretely that we'll we'll be a little kinder to each other mm. that's sort of the idealistic hope what if every person on the planet was actually your cousin what if there was a single family tree that existed online where you could literally go there punch in your name and a little bit more information and track how you were related to almost every person on earth. That is the absolutely gargantuan task that acclaimed author A.J. Jacobs is working on right now. Well, he's actually building the biggest family tree that's ever existed in history. Now, there's some really interesting benefits and scary things about this. For example, if you wanted to get in touch with somebody famous, it might be a little bit easier if you could kind of call them up and say, hey, you're my cousin, we should hang out. Then again, if you're looking to get romantically involved with somebody, if everyone's your cousin, that might provide a whole different set of challenges. A.J. Jacobs is renowned for having done these incredible, intensive, year-long experiments that have produced books that have swept the mindset um, and the attention span of millions of people. Really funny, really informative. And in fact, this summer, he's launching the biggest global family reunion in history. These are all things that we're going to explore in today's conversation. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Let's talk a little bit about you um, and, uh, and 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 your your journey in the world. Um, you're you're a New York kid. 
Yeah. Where'd you grow up? up? I grew up right here in Manhattan. Yeah, where about what part? On uh, 82nd Street between Park and Lex. Oh, so you literally live with, well, across the park, right? But, yeah, exactly. Right, this okay. is my this is my area. Yeah. yeah. What was uh, so you grew up in the city then in the uh, like 70s and 80s. That's which it. Was, it was just a really different time in the city. What was it like growing up in the city around then? Well, I don't have anything to compare it to because I grew up here. Right. So people talk about their backyards, and I'm like, what's that? <laughs> uh, but uh, for me, it, it was interesting just because there was so much stuff that I was uh, able to explore. I love to explore. So even in high school, I went to the Scientology Center, which is on uh, on 82nd Street between Park and Madison. Right. And I like... I just went in and I, I poked around, wanted to see what it was all about. You were just curious about what Scientology was? I was what, just what's curious. What's the deal with Scientology? Yeah, <laughs> and it was fascinating. I mean, I went, I wandered away from the the, the uh, babysitter and wandered into L. Ron Hubbard's office. Did you which seriously? Was, the problem was he had been dead for like 10 years, but he still had this beautiful office with, uh, and he had a yachting hat on the table. Oh, that's and, too funny. And, and it I, like hadn't been touched in 10 years. It hadn't years. been touched. I asked him about it and they said, well, you know, in case he ever comes back and re-inhabits his body, we want to be ready. Okay. So for me, that was just, this is awesome. What a playground. What a, a, so many amazing places to explore. Yeah. I mean, it is amazing. I, I grew up just outside of, uh, um, New York City and Long Island, Port Washington. So we would like, you know, when I got old enough, we'd kind of sneak out and jump on the train into the city <laughs> without telling anyone and explore a little bit, go down to Chinatown, buy fireworks for the July 4th. <laughs> but it was always this. And I remember back then coming in, actually, we would come into Times Square to get fake IDs. And we're about the same age, I think, right. a couple of years older than you. And, um, and, and I remember going in there with a friend of mine who was a girl, you know, like 11th grade or something like that or 12th grade and freak, freaking out when we got to Times Square. Cause Times Square then is not like Times Square now. No, no, it's not. There was no Disney back then. No M&M stores. Yeah. I mean, that was hardcore. It was a seedy kind of like dark, you know, place, but, um, but that's where we went to get the ideas. <laughs> <laughs> so you're hanging out and, uh, where'd you, where'd you go to school? I went to college at Brown right. uh, in Providence. Cool. So what did you uh, study there? I studied, I studied philosophy, which I'm glad I studied. It was not the most practical of uh, areas. You know, I got out, and there were not a lot of jobs for philosophers <laughs> at Fortune 500 companies. But, but I do think it helped me learn how to think a little bit better. I hope. Uh, but. And then the other thing I studied was intro classes. I loved a good intro class. Wait, like the 500-person mega lecture? Yeah. <laughs> I think I took What was every, it about it that, like, you dug? I just love... I think there's something nice about being a dilettante. I think that word, <laughs> that word has a negative connotation. But I think dabbling is great. Because I think a lot of the best ideas are interdisciplinary. Totally and if you great. pluck something from one place uh, and combine it with... Uh, a totally yeah. different topic. So I am a big fan of of going deep, but also going broad. You no. got to go broad as well as deep. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. I think I, I so agree with you. It's funny. I took, I'm, I'm remembering back to my not so illustrious college career <laughs> <laughs> at Binghamton back when it was called SUNY B. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and I ended up taking everything from like, I was a political science major, which, which was, um, from maybe like actually, nah, probably there was no difference in utility than philosophy at that point. <laughs> it's like the default major for me. But yeah, I ended up taking 
everything from you know musical theater to earthquakes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. But but flashing forward, you know, when you think about where where ideas come from, and I I'm a big believer in sort of like pattern recognition as a right. source for everything. It's like the more data points you have, the more pieces you can, the world you can draw from totally. to try and see things that other people don't see. Right. And you've written a great musical about earthquakes, if uh, I'm not mistaken. That would be uh, coming next. <laughs> well, one Damn, of the, you've disclosed the topic of my next book. <laughs> <laughs> one of the great stories, one of my for one of my projects, I read the Encyclopedia Britannica. Right, the and first one of, book, right? Yeah, that was my first book. And one of the great things I learned was about how some of the, the great thinkers used these ideas from totally different topics, like Isaac Newton. The idea that he got the uh, concept of gravity from a falling apple, that is not true. But what is true is that he was a scientist, but he mm. got really into reading about alchemy, which was even then like totally freaky, and all of his scientist friends are like, what are you doing? But he said, I'm You mean like turning lead into gold alchemy? Yeah, and magic. It was all about uh, uh. magic. And in alchemy, they talk about these magical forces that act on objects from afar. Uh-huh. And it's just such a bizarre concept to someone with a scientific mind. But he was able to use that, and he's like, well, that's not true, but maybe there is this thing called gravity that acts on objects from afar. Right. And he couldn't have made that leap without reading this weird alchemy stuff. Yeah. So I encourage people to read the weirdest, farthest, and broadest that they can. Yeah, and just experience the the weirdest and broadest and farthest things also in life. I so agree with that. So interesting to me, you brought up Einstein and and, uh, and alchemy, and um, I'm I'm fascinated by men and women of science who are also deeply faith based. You know, because it seems like such a contradiction to me. Right. That, and then, but, but you see it, you know, and, 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 um, have you explored that at all or thought about it? I mean, the philosopher side of you or? Well, I am, uh, one of my projects was about the Bible. And, right. uh, I'll just give you the quick background on that. Uh, and that came about because I grew up with no religion mm. at all. I, I, as I say in the book, I'm Jewish, but I'm Jewish right. in the same way the Olive Garden is Italian, which mm. it, maybe you are too. Pretty similar. Yeah. Similar. <laughs> But I wanted to find out about it, so I decided to live by the rules of the Bible. That was how I was going to learn about the Bible. So I did. I followed every rule that I could. And um, for me, I have a very scientific point of view. I I almost worship science, which I know is a uh, a bit of a paradox. But I'm a huge fan. I think it's the best way to know about the world. But at the same time, after this experience... I became what a friend of mine, he's a Lutheran pastor, he calls it a reverent agnostic, Mm. which uh, I love. I I think I started a Facebook page on it at one point, if anyone wants to join, reverent agnostic. (laughs) Because my feeling is, I I don't know if there's a God or not. I don't even know what that means. But uh, for me, the idea of sacredness is wonderful. Mm. And sacredness originally just meant separateness. So... The idea of taking something and making it separate and special, uh, and that could be the Sabbath, you know, just taking one day yeah. and not working. It could be uh, taking time before every meal to say thanks, not necessarily to God. I say thanks before a meal to, uh, you know, the, the farmers who grew my asparagus and the truck driver who mm. dr- drove my asparagus yeah. to, the, you know, the woman who sold it at the grocery. Like That, to me, is a wonderful concept. So I am a reverent agnostic. Right. 
which is, I mean, I think it resonates with so many people these days. It's interesting for, um, I'm, I'm working on my next book also right now, as, as I know you are at, at the same time. And, um, so I'm doing a whole bunch of, um, research on faith and sense of belonging and the, the statistics on what's happening in faith pretty much in the Western world these days is kind of astonishing. There's just sort of like a mass abandonment of organized religion. And, um, and you want to kind of like what's, what's driving that. And then there's some interesting research on whether people are abandoning the formal structure of faith or they actually not believe in God anymore. Mm, right. And the rate of abandonment of the institutions of religion is way faster than, than, you know, the number of people that are saying, well, I don't believe in God. You know, I think a lot of people are terrified of actually standing up and saying, well, no, I don't believe in the actual, the concept of God, no matter what, how, how you frame it. But a lot of people are getting pretty comfortable walking away from the community and, and the structure of religion, of organized religion. Interesting. Well, for me, actually, there are, uh, there are positives to religion and, and huge drawbacks. Uh, I think the drawbacks are when you are so certain that your way is right mm. that you start acting, uh, self-righteous and like, that. uh, you know, fundamentalism. But the advantages are it's a wonderful way to provide a community. Uh, and you know, Pete, there are studies that show people who go to church live longer and they're happier generally <laughs> and they're happier, which I don't think has to do with the church. It could be anything. It could at whatever community it yeah. is. It could be. In fact, there's an atheists, uh, club that I went to while I was <laughs> writing awesome. my book, which was totally paradoxical to me because I thought, you know, the whole reason to become an atheist is so you don't have to go to church. But these people, every Sunday, they go and they yeah. talk about atheism and what it means to them. So to me, that's the big advantage of, of religion is the community right. and, and getting together and trying to do some good. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. I think it's such a huge part of it. I mean, we're social animals. We're just wired that way. I think, but I think part of it also in the con, I think that is sort of, that's the container. That's where everything happens. And then the notion of, um, and this, which really ties into, you know, your book, which is, you know, there's a set of rules where like you, you know, the rules that you have to live by when you open your eyes in the morning and throughout right. the day. And so it, it kind of clears away a whole bunch of ambiguity and oh, uncertainty. Absolutely. So it's kind of like, look, this is a situation, you know, like what's the rule that handles that? Okay. Yes, this is how I have to be. Totally. There's certainly, there is a lot of, I'm all for freedom of choice, but there's also this idea of freedom from choice, which is, uh, I think underrated. Like when I was following the rules of the Bible and I passed a homeless person on the street who was asking for money, I didn't have to think. I was like, I have to give him money. Mm. I have to give him a dollar. And it was sort of relieving. And, and there is, there are all these studies in the book, The Paradox of Choice, where people are happier when they have fewer choices. I still am a huge fan of choice, of course, but, uh, but I like having some sort of structure. And that's actually, I like having that in all of my books. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I would be good at writing a novel because it's so unstructured. But I love, for my first book, when I read the encyclopedia, I had a structure. I had chapter A, chapter B, chapter C, mm-hmm. and I could talk about the weird things I learned in, when re- I read about the, a volume and and what happened in my life right so i'm a big fan of structure and then within that structure doing a lot of uh creativity yeah it's so interesting that you bring that up because i'm i've been dancing with that and trying to figure out how to structure like when i write something larger also and it was interesting so when i was writing the last book 
I started out with a pretty, you know, a, a big outline. You know, they started out with a small outline, made it more and more detailed, more detailed. And then, you know, essentially said, okay, let me fill it in right. and make it and turn it into a book. And I, and then I started having all these conversations with these just, you know, world-class creators, writers, artists, entrepreneurs. And I'm asking them, like, how do you do this stuff? Like, how do you do not really good work, but how do you do great work? And almost as one, the conversation would be, well, you need to let go of the plan. At a certain point, like you, the plan gets you going. Right. But at a certain point, the difference between really good and great, you know, like jaw dropping is when you're willing to just let the, the final creation, whatever it is, um, whether it's a business or a book or a movie, where the, when you, you let it take you where it needs to go as it sort of like unfolds itself, you know, like all those assumptions you made in the beginning, um, some of them are going to be proven right, and the bunch are going to be proven just totally off. And you have to be open, right, to to shifting gears and really changing courses. I think that's true. I mean, I personally, I like knowing where I'm going to end up, but yeah. then I like to take sideways yeah. to get there. And I have a friend who uh, writes for the Daily Show with John Stewart, and I was at talking to him about writing comedy, and he said one of the most important things is to be able to surprise yourself. Uh, while you're writing, which I loved, and I hadn't really thought about it. But since then, I'm like, that is good. And so when I'm writing, I try to surprise myself. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I, I um, read a book recently. Uh, who was it? Um, John Rady and uh, uh, forgetting the other uh, gentleman who wrote it called Go Wild. Um, but he's you know, a lifetime journalist. And at the end of the book, there's a kind of like a little thing that he threw in there saying that he, when he looks at writing a book, he won't write a book. In in his mind, the only reason that he would write a book would would be if the actual process of the writing the book represented a substantial growth or transformation experience for him, right? Along the way, not just for other people who might read it, but like he wants to be transformed through the process of of putting the book together. That's interesting. Well, that's the way I feel. Goes along with, I mean, like your yep. whole. That's know, what ethic. I do. I take a topic that I'm interested in and I just dive in, and it's like getting a master's degree. Yeah. Uh, every time I write a book and I, I feel so lucky that I'm able to do this for a living and just, uh, you know, dive in and, and immerse myself in whatever topic. So let's talk about how this actually became your living. So you're, you're hanging out in Brown, you you leave school at that point. Do you start to, and you're, you're studying philosophy. Are you starting to develop a Jones to write or is this part of you or is this something that unfolds later? Well, I always wanted to write Uh part of my problem though was, uh, I, I think I'm better at nonfiction than fiction, and uh, and I think I'm I'm better at first person journalism than uh, than you know third person journalism. But I had a very boring life. You know, my <laughs> my parents are very normal, delightfully normal, and I had you know my dad was not a spy or an alcoholic or a circus performer. So I had I thought well one thing I the only thing I can do is is uh, if I have a normal life, put myself in a very uh, abnormal situation uh, right. and then write about that, almost fish out of water. And uh, so that's what I've done. I, I put myself in these weird situations and see how it unfolds and what I learn and what I can take away right. and tell the reader. So what was your first um, sort of official writing gig? My first official writing gig? Uh, well, I wrote for, I was a freelance writer and I would write for anyone who would take me. Uh -huh. I mean, I do think that's a lesson I try to tell writers uh, who are starting out. Just, you know, don't be picky. I wrote for Dental Economics Magazine. <laughs> which is That a, sounds fascinating. It was. <laughs> I'm sure if you're a dentist, it is, actually. <laughs> and you want to invest. Yeah, right. this is the mag. There's like 
no other magazine that can touch it mm-hmm. in terms of dentists who want to invest in stocks. So yeah, I wrote about Dental Economics magazine. Uh, and, and then I eventually got to write for a small newspaper, uh, which I think is good because to me, writing, a lot of writing is researching. Uh, yeah. and the more details you get, you know, it's, it's, the more, I, this is nothing new, but specificity is just, it's more interesting to say, you know, he ate a peanut butter and, um, he made an almond butter and grape a, a jam sandwich than he ate lunch. Mm-hmm. You know, the more specific you can get. And that really taught me to get specific. Yeah. So were you, um, were you looking to to really explore the journalism side of things? Were you drawn to that as well? Yeah, I loved your, uh, journalism, uh, and but I was working at this newspaper, and then I worked um, a tiny, tiny newspaper in California, doesn't exist anymore. And then I worked at uh, Entertainment Weekly, mm. and from there I went to Esquire, and that is where I started writing books, and that's my true love. Yeah. I love journalism too, but I but I love going deep and. Uh, in one topic yeah which is, so it's an interesting progression you start with shorter pieces and frequency and then you go to you know, like places that allow you to write longer and longer pieces so it's kind of like everything just gets bigger and longer and more in depth until the natural next step is it's true and one thing i find it very intimidating to think about writing a book so i do sometimes think of it all right i'm not going to write a good book i'm going to write a hundred small <laughs> articles right, right. and and figure out a way to string them together and make it an emotional arc so i mean i think that's a good always whenever i see a huge project i'm like all right let's break it down because right. i cannot just topple one tackle one big one it, big thing it's big but i love the fact that also i mean the the books that you've written unless i'm missing them they've all been um well, the first one was 2004, right? Was the encyclopedia one. Right. Right. And then um, Bible one came next, right? Right. And then the health one came next. Right. Right. So they're all basically, you have the frame going into it. It's a one-year experiment in your life. Right. Right. Which is, which kind of actually, that's kind of like creates like a trilogy, right? Because you've got like mind, uh, spirit, and body. Exactly. <laughs> and I, I said uh, when I was promoting them that I had thought of it that way, but mm-hmm. I didn't. I just came up with it afterwards. Like, I was like, it's a great good. hook for the media. Yeah, man. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's I wish awesome. I were that smart that I could have come up with it beforehand. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me, and it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new 
Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. If that sounds familiar, you should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. I love the fact that you have this frame. So, um, so, and the big frame is, okay, let me do an experiment in my life. And, and I know you said, you know, it's, well, I lived a very straightforward, not super exciting life. But was there something bigger than that that made you say, let me, let me actually like lock into these intense one year, you know, full life experiments? Well, part of it is just the idea of self-improvement. I love the idea mm-hmm. of self-improvement. And I thought the best way would be to just go to the extreme. So if I want to become healthier, why not follow every single piece of health advice, thousands of them, <laughs> and see what works for me and what doesn't? And then at the end, I can take away and keep the stuff that works right. and jettison the stuff that doesn't. So that's that was sort of, it's sort of extreme self-improvement. Hmm. So, so which brings up an interesting question of those, you know, let's take the trilogy here. Maybe we'll take them one at a time. You did like everything that you could possibly do, you found every rule that you could possibly follow and tried, you know, within, you know, the capable of a human being to follow them all. Um, with each one of those three categories, what were the ones that you decided to to stick with afterwards? Well, I'll give you one from each one. Uh, okay. First, I, I took away many, but from the Bible, one was the idea of gratitude, mm-hmm. uh, because the Bible says that you have to be thankful mm-hmm. all the time. And I took that very literally. So I was thankful for every little thing in my life. I would, you know, I would... Uh, get in and I press the elevator button and I would be thankful that the elevator came to the mm-hmm. lobby and then I'd get in the elevator and be thankful it didn't plummet to the basement <laughs> and break my uh, my forehead. So it, it was a weird way to live, but it was also wonderful because you did see that there are hundreds of things that go right every day that you totally take for granted. Yeah. And 
and and folk we focus on the three or four that go wrong so it was a radical change in perspective and that's one i've really tried to keep being thankful i'm thankful that you provided water here i'm thankful mm. that it's not too hot it's a little hot but not too hot i could be <laughs> so it's uh that is a big change in my life yeah and there's great research around that now too coming out of the world of positive psychology on how that's really you know we've got this really strong negative bias so in order to offset it you actually need a ratio of a multiple of you know, like negative thoughts of you need all this gratitude and positive oh thoughts. yeah i mean you talk about this in your book that criticism you know you read a hundred positive <laughs> reviews and then you read one negative review yeah, that's, that's all you think about <laughs> yeah so that is a terrible way that's a, our brains are completely uh warped and and flawed yeah, so have to I, agree there yeah so then from um living biblically what was the sort of like one thing where well that was the living biblically oh, okay that was living that was, biblically right, right. uh then yeah that for, would make sense right for health uh one thing was just the idea of the one thing that really changed my life is that I move a lot more. Mm. Uh, you probably read... you wrote that whole book on a treadmill, Exactly. Right? Yeah. I wrote it while walking on a treadmill, and I still do. Every day I get oh, on the awesome. treadmill. I walk. I don't run. But I just... It, there's a lot of... I think you brought up John Rady, who... Yeah. Who wrote a book about Spark? This. Yeah, yeah Spark. phenomenal. The book like changed my world. It's fantastic, and it's all about, as you know, how how much your movement affects your thoughts, yeah. and how much uh, just keeping active keeps you more creative and happier, and just walking around. So that's what I do, and 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 it even there's a, another. A uh, woman named Amy Cuddy, you've probably seen mm -hmm. her TED Talk. Sure. Yeah, so same thing. She says that your posture affects your mood. No. The, so I try to stand up straight because my regular posture is terrible. I like to say it's like hominid number two on the evolution charts. So that was the big takeaway. And the other takeaway from the health thing, health, you know, is how do I motivate myself to be healthy? And one of the ways I think about it is is instead of thinking it as a selfish act, mm. you know, think of trying to remember that it, that it's, it's for my family. I want to be around so that I can see my kids get married. Uh, and so it's not, if you think of it that way, instead of just thinking of it as a selfish act, you're actually doing something for the community because you'll be around and you'll be helped and you won't be taking away resources. Then that's much more motivating to me. Oh, that's interesting. So the idea of like a bigger service uh, element to it actually is more of yeah. a draw for you. That's it's a little service. It's like a responsibility. It's not just something I should do to get abs. It's <laughs> something I should do because I want to be a good person to yeah. my family. Yeah, I know. That's a huge motivator for me also is really for, for my family. It's like, how can I take care of myself? Because you know, I've got a wife and a kid who I want to be here as long as possible. And also I want to kind of set an example. Right. You know, to be, especially these days, you know, we're both in New York City, you know, raising families in New York City. And the first thing that gets stripped is, you know, is movement from school right. systems, you know, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's kind of disastrous on so many levels. I mean, the ancient Greeks knew that, you know, there was a scholar athlete there. They were intertwined. There's no right. separation there. One feeds the other, but somehow we've kind of forgotten about that these days. So it's, I mean, even if you, you can draw from so many worlds, you know, like from performance and, and cognitive function and then, and then health and well-being. It's like, yeah, but I think about that also. You know, I want to model. It's funny because I meditate every morning. 
I'm the first one up in my house. When I, when I really started a regular practice, I was a little bit nervous about my daughter wandering out and seeing daddy, you know, like just kind of like sitting in this <laughs> trance-like state. And, um, and then pretty quickly, she just kind of got it. She's like, oh, you know, he's doing his meditation thing. And then, um, and every once in a while, she would come out and, you know, just sort of like bring a blanket and lie down and put her head in my lap. And I'm just, I'm like, this is the best. <laughs> um, so just, and I've never told her to meditate, never taught her, but just, exposing her to the notion that this is a regular practice that, right that you know can be good for you if you want to come to it in your own time it's, that is great i have not yet come to it i know all the research yeah. how great it is and it makes you smarter i didn't come to it all that willingly so. but yeah no i haven't been able to i actually there is a we got nintendo wii a few years ago mm. and there's a meditation game on right. nintendo wii so maybe which is like just sounds so contradictory i know it's hilarious you, <laughs> hey if it gets the job done man i'm for that's all right. Yeah, I don't think it's quite as popular as uh, uh, as uh, some of the, <laughs> the action sports one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, was there anything from the um, the uh, encyclopedia one? Well, there was lots of takeaways like from that knowledge. I mean, one is just the idea, and you talk about this in your book: the idea of failure and how how it's such a part of life, mm. and you have to. You don't have to love it, but you have to accept it and realize, you know, I still get rejected all the time, every day, dozens of times. and uh, Which is so fun. So let's linger on that for a second, though, right? Because a lot of people look at you, they're like, okay, really successful guy, multi-time, New York Times, best-selling author, he's got the world at his feet. You should just, like, you should wake up in the morning, I think the assumption for a lot of people is, you know, like, Every door swings open when you step out of your apartment first. <laughs> well, it's nice of this. If anyone actually believes that, it's not, it's quite a delusion. I don't think it, yeah, it's, I'm hustling all the time and I get reject. I don't think you can do anything interesting without just going out there and trying it and getting rejected, rejected, rejected. Uh, and yeah, I still do it all the time. So my book ideas, article ideas get rejected, and some of them are bad. Most of my ideas are bad, <laughs> but uh, but some of them take off, and I love that. And you know, in the encyclopedia, you would read about all these guys. You know, Chester Carlson, the guy who invented Xerox, he got rejected from twenty two companies. E. E. Cummings had a good. Uh, he got rejected. One of his books got rejected by fifteen publishers, and in the introduction that he dedicated it to all of the publishers who rejected him. He <laughs> That's said, great. It was sort of an anti-dedication. He said, you know, thanks to my wife and kids or whatever. And then he said, and no thanks to, and then he listed all the publishers oh, who were, <laughs> which seems a little petty, right? A little petty. It's a little aggressive. Yeah. Even, I mean, E. Cummings, you right. think like clouds and balloons. Yeah. He's actually like, he's got a petty streak, <laughs> but, but anyway, the point is, rejection that was one of the big yeah. lessons from that yeah and i think you know there's this notion that you know once you've made it you made it for life rather than you know, like you know it's a constant process you know and some stuff works really well and some stuff is going to bomb and and the stuff that most people end up seeing is the small percentage of stuff that you throw up against a wall that makes it through like every gatekeeper and every filter and every all of the hard work and putting it together until it actually sees the day of light. Totally. And there is a, yeah, there's so much that I've written that I'll never see the light of day. Thank God. And in fact, oh, yeah, I, it's not the same thing. I'm, I contribute. I'm really happy about that. Yeah, too. I know. There, there's actually a book coming out that I contributed to called Drivel. And it's something like uh, the worst writing from your favorite writers or something like oh, that. So I, I contributed 
uh, a few pieces to that. Uh, because, yes, yeah, I mean, you talk to these creativity experts and they say Picasso did some great paintings, but he also did a lot of crappy paintings. Mm. Everyone does. It's a it's a quantity game. Yeah. And I think that's one of the big, the mythology in, in the world of creative professionals also is people are kind of like, well, you get to a level where, you know, either you have it or you don't. That's one of the big debates, of course. And then like, even if you assume that you have it or you can work towards it, um, then it's still going to take, you know, years of developing the craft. But then once you hit that level of like, I'm a master, then all the work that you do from that moment forward is going to be at that level. Right. Right. <laughs> and it's like, uh, it doesn't quite work that way in reality. I mean, I love the fact that you said it's a quantity game because it is, you know, and it's, what's funny too is like, you'll find, you know, stashes of undiscovered illustrations or drawings or paintings from famous artists and they can, they'll come available and people will pay a ton of money for right. them. Even though like, this is from a period where the, the, the person really wasn't good, <laughs> but, but their name is on it. And they just want something, you know, like with the name on it. But right. you know, there's a lot of drivel. Like you said, I love the fact that there's a book coming out called The Drivel. That's yeah, awesome. I think there needs to be more of that. It's good for people to see how terrible a lot of these that. writers and artists were uh, and, and still are sometimes. You yeah. know? I, I like this new book that I'm writing. It took me three or four stabs to find the right topic. Mm. Now I'm overjoyed because I think I, I found a topic I'm so passionate about, but there were like three aborted books right before it. So talk, all right. So are you, I want to talk about the book that you're working on right now. Um, but are you open to sharing what those, any of those aborted topics were too? Sure. I'll tell you all of my failures. I mean, I get what I do. I get a lot of, uh, suggestions because what I do is, as you know, I do these experiments, try things out. So I get a lot of suggestions from readers on what I should do. One of the most popular I get a lot from readers is that I should try to become the greatest lover alive <laughs> and, and do all of the positions in the Kama Sutra. <laughs> and I actually brought this up with my wife once and she's like, no way. There's no way you're going to do, that. which I am, I'm okay with. And then also not then write about it. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, I mean, you have the structure for that book too, but I don't know if you'd ever. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, who would want to read that? Secondly, I don't have the energy or the flexibility. Maybe you as a yoga meditation guy do, but I don't. Uh, so yeah, that was a, that was a non-starter. There was one that I actually may still go back to, but the idea was, it was sort of similar to Shark Tank, the book, where I would, I, I take my book advance and I would invest it in five different startups and mm. see which one took off and sort of learn to be an angel investor VC, um, by doing it. Uh, and it's still an interesting idea. The problem is, that you, chances are you would lose money because right. Right. there's a good shot that all five companies yeah, were ninety five. Right. I mean, I looked yeah. into the statistics. The statistics are that one in ten of these startups actually takes off and exits in a big way. Right. But but the real statistic beyond is probably like much less, like one in twenty, because yeah. you don't read about the right. a exactly. lot of the ones that just never even took off. So so anyway, I didn't I didn't end up doing that now, um, and. Yeah, I can't even remember the other rejects, but there were many. So tell me how I, I tell me about the the book, the, the new book, and what brought you to it because I think it's a pretty cool concept. Well, thank you, and you are going to be involved because awesome. you are. Uh, yeah, this one came about because I got a, an email from a guy out of the blue, and he said, "I've read your books, and you're my twelfth cousin." And he said he had a, a family tree with eighty thousand people on it, and I thought, of course. 
Nigerian scam. He's going to ask me to send right. him $10,000. But turned out it's true that there are now, thanks to the Internet, these mega mammoth family trees with thousands and thousands of people on them because it's it's thousands of people working at the same time it's the wikipedia model collaboration right and so now i'm on one i'm on a couple of different sites like wikitree and genie which have millions of people on my family tree so i have a a tree with 78 million people so, and you didn't put it, obviously you put it in the parts that you did, but then they're drawing from everything that everybody else has put in and, and basically finding the overlap. That's so it. Create exactly. One giant so family if, tree. Right. If you put up your tree and, and there's a Jonathan Fields in your tree and a Jonathan Fields in someone else's tree, they figure out, well, is this the same Jonathan Fields? Right, if it yeah. is, you can combine. So it just sprouts like a, like a, an avalanche of family trees and it's it's so cool and so with all of these millions of cousins i thought i want to throw a party so that's what i'm doing <laughs> that's my book is i'm throwing the biggest family reunion ever it's a fundraiser for alzheimer's and it's um it's going to be like a family reunion meets a Tet conference meets uh, Woodstock uh, with without the nudity or uh, <laughs> and with bathroom facilities. But uh, it's here in New York, two thousand f- summer of twenty fifteen, mm-hmm. and everyone's invited. You're invited. All seven billion members of the because at some point we're all part of the same tree. Exactly, we are. That's what that's the idea. Is that it shows we're one big family, right. and that cliche is true. We're all one big family, and maybe if we see this more concretely, that we'll we'll be a little kinder to each other. Mm. That's sort of the idealistic hope. Uh, but I am loving it. I am loving. So I've been going around meeting all of my. My cousins. Right, your relatives. <laughs> my relatives. I interviewed George H.W. Bush, who is my about 14 steps away from me. Hmm. Uh, and I'm a Democrat, but I, I think he's a, a lovely man. And he's family. And he's family. <laughs> so he, that's the whole thing. It's like, okay, well, he's family. So I got to give him some level of respect, exactly. right? Even if you don't agree with the, the philosophy. That's it. <laughs> uh, and, um, yeah, and I met Daniel Radcliffe, who is... Uh, he had said on a radio show he had read one of my books, so I reached out to him. I was like, you know, we're cousins, and I had tracked down how we're cousins. Oh, that's and too funny. So I got to, it's actually a good way to network. Right. It's like, <laughs> it's the ultimate social network. You call up, a, if you're looking to get a client, like, hey, you know, we're, we're I don't want to freak you out, but we're cousins. Maybe right. would you mind taking a meeting? So uh, it does have practical value. But yeah, no, I'm loving it. And it, as I say, it's nonprofit. It is, uh, I have partners who are helping, uh, including Family Search, which is another awesome website mm-hmm. I, um, for ancestry and uh, heredity. So I'm super excited about it, and I want you there. I haven't tracked you down. You well, have a you have your name is a little too common. It's a little annoying. But what's I funny will... is my name actually is not my real name. Oh, really? Yeah. My, when my great grandfather came into the country, our family name was Chains because he was it was he came from uh, Russia, um, and and he was he was concerned about anti-Semitism when they came to the country, so they basically like, changed the name. Interesting. So do you know yeah. what your real name is? It's Felchstein. Felchstein. Okay. Was, was the original. Supposedly, I'll have to double check. I'm but, gonna track you down. Um, I but will. But what's funny is my so um, you gave a talk about this at, at you know our mutual friend uh, Chris Gillibo's World Love Animation that guy. Summit, and um, my daughter was hanging out with us in the audience, and she was she was listening to it, and then she went on Genie. 
and she's been building out our family tree. No way. <laughs> yeah. So she's like asking, you know, like grandparents, you know, like for their all sorts of different stuff. So she's That's on there. Fantastic. So it's like she's building the whole thing out. So I'm, I'm going to go look her up right now, see yeah. how we connect. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll set that up because we'll have to find the overlap. I'm sure there is. I mean, um, it's, it won't even be that hard to find. Yeah, probably not. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So uh, how does this become a book? <laughs> <laughs> well, the book will be, it's weird because I'm spending more, far more of my time on the event <laughs> than the book. So don't tell my publisher. But I do think, I mean, it's in, I think uh, I'll have such a community of, of cousins that hopefully some of them will buy the book. You know, if I got 78 million cousins, all I need is like one in 10. And then I got like <laughs> the biggest bestseller ever. Uh, but yeah, the book will be partly about this, um, my some of my most interesting cousins. Maybe mm. I'll go. Uh, I'm cousins with Warren Buffett, as are you. Mm -hmm. So go and ask him for financial advice. Um, also, I'll go. I turned out when I did DNA testing that I am distant cousins with my wife. 
So that ah. was an interesting twist. Uh, so I'm going to have a chapter. So how do we feel about that morally and ethically? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was distant. Uh, but, you know, it's not unusual. We're all married to our cousins if you go back far enough. Right, and you look in history, all of these, you know, Edgar Allan Poe married, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, everyone married their cousin. So there will be sort of a, a chapter on the history of cousin marriage and what does it mean, the history of intermarriage, because we live in a very interesting world right now. Because we are intermarrying at an r- unprecedented rate. Hmm. So, I mean, that is my great hope for world peace, is that we're going to be intermarried so much that it's going to be hard to... It's very hard now to say, oh, I'm a pure-blood Scotsman, because there's already yeah, so much intermarriage. Yeah, like we're all mutts to a certain yes, extent. Yes, we are all mutts. Is that part of the bigger f- sort of philosophical underpinning of what you're doing with this? I mean, do you think do you think about it on that level, or, or are you just kind of having a blast and learning really cool no, stuff? No, no, that is a big part of it, is the idea that uh, we are all one part of this big family, uh, and that hopefully that will change people's perception. You'll see how enmeshed you are in history. You'll see that you are, you, you're a mutt and that you should, you should maybe have a little more tolerance. So yeah, that's a big part of it. And, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't believe in the literal Bible, but scientists talk about the mitochondrial Eve and the Y chromosomal Adam. And these were the two two people that we all that we all have a tiny bit of their dna so they are all of ours great 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 repeat that about three thousand times grandparents and so we all do come from these two people hmm. yeah it's pretty cool so i want to shift gears a little bit yeah. and um and talk a little bit about your creative process so you're somebody who who's a full-time writer mm-hmm. there aren't many around these days you know, like you earn your living, you support a family in New York City as a writer and a published author. You, you're a regular contributor to magazines. And, right. For now. Um, for yeah. now. I- <laughs> that world is moving really quickly. That's um, it. Yeah. Well, let's, let's go there a little bit. I mean, what's it like to, to be, um, writing, uh, sort of like, you know, regular columns for, um, for traditional print media these days? What's that world like? Well, to me, the big change is, that I, I now, I don't even necessarily see myself uh, as a writer. I more see myself as like a small entrepreneur. Mm, yeah. And I just, for me, the idea, it's so important to come up with as many ideas and try them and see what works. So part of my living is I, I'm an editor at large at Esquire. Part is from the book advances. Part is from speaking. Mm. Uh, I do a lot of speaking. Part is... um just trying new things. Uh, and, you know, this, uh, I'm not going to make any money on this global family reunion. Uh, in fact, I might lose money because <laughs> mm-hmm. it is a, uh, a, a fundraiser, but, uh, but it, you know, that'll hopefully increase my community and maybe I can do something with my community nah. that does make money someday. So to me, that's the difference. I don't see myself as a writer of uh, attached to one particular publication. I'm just sort yeah. of a free roaming entrepreneur. And I think that's the, I mean, it's, I think that's really the mindset that you have to adopt these days if you want to survive. Um, right. as a writer, cause the land, it's like you, you wake, wake up one morning and the landscape is different, you know, from how it was yesterday. I know. Things are moving so quickly and you have to, but I know so many people, um, 
especially writers who really fight against that concept of being an entrepreneur or an enterprise because all they want to do is put their head down and do great research and write great pieces and, and hope and pray that that's enough. Yeah, well, I sort of had that feeling too. And I had to make a, a conscious switch. And one of the things that helped me was that I had to pretend, I said, all right, I, I have to do this marketing side of writing. It's not what I wanted to do, but as long as I'm doing it, let me try to be as creative as possible mm. in the marketing. So, for instance, when I had a book about the Bible, I was like, how can I market this creatively? And I thought, well, what if I, uh, what if I reached audiences that never had any interest in, or, you know, mm. just, you wouldn't think. So I was like, what about women's magazines? So I wrote for Glamour magazine, I wrote sex tips from the Bible <laughs> because there are sex, you know, there are a lot of relations there. In the Song of Solomon, there's a, a whole section on, uh, he says that your breasts are like twin gazelles grazing in the lilies. That's in the Bible. It's hot stuff for the Bible, at least. <laughs> So uh, that, you know, finding creative ways to market is and reframing marketing as a creative enterprise instead of this necessarily evil that mm. gets in the way of writing, that was a big switch for me. Yeah, I think that's part of the big mythology that, that stops so many people from going to that side is that you just you work on this foundation assumption that that the business side is evil. It's just you're an artist. Yeah, like that's what you do, and anything that you know ha involves business or marketing or entrepreneurship, it's just it it wars with the fiber of what being an right. artist is, and and um and, and I love the fact that you you kind of said no, not necessarily. Like, I can have a lot of fun. Yeah, you know, I can do something that you know is gets the benefits of really good marketing, but at the same time be super creative and have a blast. Doing right. It. You know, it's just you have to just think about it. You, you have, have to, to think kind of shift about the lens. And I once interviewed the artist Christo, the one who, yeah. you know, he did the gates in Central Park right. and wraps buildings. And he, I, he was working on those, those gates in Central Park. You remember those? They were yeah, like 10,000 sure. <laughs> gates, but he was working on it for literally 26 years trying wow. to get permission from the city. And I said, you know, that must have driven you nuts. And he says, well, yes and no. He says to me, part of the art is going through the red tape mm -hmm. and the bureaucracy. That is not separate from my art, uh, which I thought was brilliant. I don't know if I could do that. Like, I can't reframe filling out forms as art. But uh, but I like his thinking right. that, that you can't just say, well, this is, this is not part of my job. It is part of it, and try to be creative with it. Yeah, that's so interesting. If you can do that reframe and just say, this is all part of the entire process. And maybe like all, all that is the stuff, stuff that opens up a new creative vein, you know, when, when you sort of go back to the realm of creativity. Um, right. Because you had now that you've had, whether it's the angst or the experience or the time, um, that just gives you more data. Right. To that's put true. into sort of like the creative engine. Oh. Yeah. That's, uh, that to me is that, right. Getting as much knowledge and experience. And then mixing them around and seeing what comes out. Yeah. Have, have you thought about, um, you're still traditionally published. Um, have you, have you thought about at all sort of the future of books and the possibility of doing it independently? Oh, sure. You know, you can't not with all every, every day there's another article about yeah. it. I, so far, um, uh, the, my publisher has been delightfully supportive mm. and they have, 
they have skills that I don't have, like sales skills uh, and and connections at the bookstores. So for now, I'm I'm quite happy with my situation. But you know, the key to key to life that was another big lesson of the encyclopedia is uh, is flexibility and adaptability. So maybe someday in the future, I'll I'll do something else. But for now, I'm I'm pretty happy with the setup. Yeah, it's so interesting to me when I hear um, writers bashing the sort of traditional, what is it, big five now? Right. <laughs> big one, I think. Right, they're certainly moving in that direction. Um, yeah, because, I mean, I think a lot of the handwriting is on the wall. But for, it's and people come to me all the time and they're asking, like, should I independently publish myself? You know, should I go with a publisher if I can get a get an offer? And I'm like, you know, what's your business model? Right. What's what's the what what's the role of a book in the bigger scope of what you're doing? You're like, are you just a writer's writer where you just you have to write? This is just what you do. You that's it, you know? Or is this you know is this going to open up the next three years of speaking and consulting and stuff totally. like this? And um, yeah, and it's and it's you know depending on what your you know what the role of the book is and your sort of your bigger creative venture, you know that the decision really has to be made in that context. And a lot of people I think don't sort of zoom the lens out to that level when thinking about it. they either just think it's, you know, the, the, the traditional publishing is, is evil or it's, you know, it's God. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no, that is true. I mean, yeah, I, I have a friend who's far more successful than me, but he talks about how, uh, he says that the books feed the TV appearances mm-hmm. and the TV appearances feed the speaking gigs right. and the speaking gigs feed his family. <laughs> so, yeah, you got for some people the book is the end point, and for some it's just a a, a stepping stone, a, a calling card yeah. for for something else. Have you read uh, the book Daily Rituals? I'm in the middle of it. I love it. It's fantastic. So it's good. Not, it's so good. And one of the things that that um, really struck there were a bunch of things that struck me about the book, but, but one of the things that really struck me was. The number of people in the book that actually kept a day job and they didn't, they weren't working to try and leave it. They're like, no, like I'm good with this arrangement, you know, Interesting. I'm yeah. good keeping my day job and then doing this like, incredible other stuff <laughs> on the side. And I was always I'm kind of thinking like, what is it about that? And, um, increasingly I think that that, I, I wonder if that gives them the freedom to actually create on a level where they're they're creating with much lesser fear of judgment like that's they're creating true. much closer to the heart because right. they don't really have to worry about feeding their family that's taken care of yeah um and whereas, then, yeah there's a there's a much lower risk if you have a, a sort of an anchor and then you can and the other thing about having a day job which i don't have is that i think that being creative being in a community, and I think there are many studies on this, where you can bounce ideas off each other, uh, that is a real sp- spur to creativity. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like Susan Cain, who wrote, wrote this book on uh, being an introvert, right. talks about how you really need to be alone to come up with great ideas. I think she overstated the case. I think you need a mix. I think you need to be in a place where there's a lot of ideas bouncing around. You take some of those ideas and, and then you can go and sit by yourself and, and create something. But I think just being a total introvert, which is actually my natural, I would naturally stay at home and not interact with other people, but I force myself mm. to because I think that is really where you get the ideas. And they talk about this, you know, the coffee houses of the... Right. 
of the yeah. enlightenment. Well, and that's one of the other things that popped out in daily rituals too is that most of these people were really social. <laughs> Which is yeah, like they would they would do the creative work for a couple of, a really a relatively short amount of time every day. And then they would go out and they socialize. They would drink a lot of drinking in that <laughs> book, you know, but they would go out on, on out walking for hours and stop by the cafe and the pub and then have family over. And then like people would come and they have, would have come, you know, people come over at, at night. And, um, there was a lot, there was a lot more of that. Like we're getting decreasingly social. It's sort of like, you know, the standard in, at least in the U S is, you know, like the more you make it, the more space you create between you and others. Right. And, um, and I think that's hurting us on so many levels. It's actually what the next book is about for me. But um, I also wonder if it's hurting the creative process because we have less opportunity for those just serendipitous conversations where the light bulbs go on. Right. And if you surround yourself with, with people who have the same point of view, then you're not going to be as creative. Right. It's just everything's homogenous. It's blah, blah, blah. Right. <laughs> exactly. So um name of this project is Good Life Project. So, uh, so, so if I offer that phrase out to you to live a good life, um, what does it mean to you? I think part of it is um, uh, that is a big question, and it's I really could, big. <laughs> I should have thought of it before because it's the yeah, called the Good Life Project. Well, I think I think it means different things to different people, uh, but so I'm not going to say this is the final answer. But to me, uh, part of it is is balance, and part of it is. Uh, one of the big secrets I've learned from all of my my experiments is uh, the importance of deception and deceiving yourself. So right. I think if you don't have a good life, then you can try to pretend that you do, and your life might actually get a little better. Right. No, you can't. I can't just leave that <laughs> hanging out there. <laughs> you got to break that down a little bit. I know that is a little. Uh, it's a little, uh, <laughs> Give me the deception part of this. Well, this is uh, yeah. Deception is a loaded word, but. I found that I think the, uh, the there's a great quote from the ha the guy who founded Habitat for Humanity, and he said, "It's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than to think your way into a new way of acting." Mm -hmm. And I love that because when I was doing the Bible, for instance, I had to one of the big challenges was to become a better person. The Bible mm -hmm. says you cannot gossip or covet or lie. And, you know, I'm a journalist and live in New York City. That's my life. Right. So I was like, what do I do? So that's when I decided to pretend to be a better person. And uh, and eventually, the more I pretended, the more I became a little bit of a better person. I still have a long way to go. But the whole idea of fake it till you make it, fake it till you become it, is very powerful. Mm. And psychology talks about it all the time. If yes. you force yourself to smile, then you actually trick your mind a bit and you become a little bit happier. Uh, I was, I had a friend in the hospital during my, my year of writing the book about the Bible. Hate hospitals. I did not want to go visit, but I said, what would a good person do? And I acted as if I were a good person. And I became, when I got to the hospital, I'm like, oh, I'm here visiting my friend. I must be pretty compassionate. Mm -hmm. And I tricked my mind into thinking that way. And I feel the same way about confidence. Uh, a lot of times when I was writing my book about health, for instance, I, I was so, every morning I woke up 
totally in despair that this book was too big. I would never finish it. I didn't know what I was talking about, but I would sort of pretend that I was confident. So I'd force myself to make phone calls <laughs> uh, to my publisher and say, we're going to have a huge party when the book comes out and we'll serve only healthy drinks like kale martinis. <laughs> and he was like, okay. And then after two hours, three hours, my mind caught up with my actions and I became a little more confident. So for me, uh, if you want to live a good life, if you want to be a good person, one strategy that I find very powerful is to pretend to be a good person. Mm. That is provocative and <laughs> interesting. I mean, I, I need to think on that. Um, yeah, very cool. It's been awesome hanging out. I appreciate the conversation. I love it. Yeah. I love it. I'm a big fan. Oh, before yeah. we turn yeah. off, can I... Uh, I do want everyone in the human family at this event. So if anyone is interested uh, in joining and seeing how they're related to me and to you and to mm. Barack Obama and uh, Kevin Bacon, uh, then they can go on my uh, on globalfamilyreunion.com. Okay. And that will tell you how to join the big family. Awesome. Well, I'm going to do my best to be there because, I mean, we're family. I can't let you down. No, right? you got to be there. It is <laughs> I got to represent. Yeah, it's not a choice. This is one <laughs> you were talking about, lack of choices. This is clearly you right. No, right. La no choice. I would be shunned. Yeah. <laughs> by like the 78 million others. <laughs> Where's Fields? <laughs> exactly. And your daughter. I want her there, too. Awesome. Great hanging out, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. As always, I hope you enjoyed the show this week. I'm always so excited to share these wonderful conversations and interesting people with you. Thanks so much for tuning in. As always, signing off for Good Life Project. This is Jonathan Fields. <laughs>